When I uh, work out at the gym, one of the things that I like to do when I'm running on the treadmill is not listen to music. For some reason, that just kind of throws me off. I like to listen to podcasts. And my favorite podcast right now is Revisionist History. Maybe some of you have listened to it before. It's put together by Malcolm Gladwell. And sort of the tagline for this particular podcast is sometimes the past deserves a second chance. And so these podcasts are all kind of connected to history and pop culture things that are happening. And, and you hear a second side to the story of what we, we've heard over time. Well, one of the, the episodes that they did, and I think it was the second year, was called The King of Tears. There's a question that Gladwell asked for this particular episode. And the question was this, why does country music make us cry and rock and roll doesn't? His conclusion was this. At the very end, he says, the reason the country music makes us cry is because it's so specific. Think about that for a moment, especially older, more traditional country music. It tells a story, right? There's a story and there's these details. And, and so it pulls at the heartstrings about this marriage that's broken, this relationship that needs to be repaired, and about the dog dying and all these horrible, terrible things that are happening. And at the end of the day, you're sitting at the bar trying to drink away all this pain that's there. I mean, the truth is, think about it, for country music, it's real life, right? This is kind of who we are and the way we act. Rock and roll is a lot different. Rock and roll, there's not a whole lot of grieving that's taking place. There's not a whole lot of pain there. In fact, it's like the same five words over and over and over and over again. See, country music is so different because, because it tells a story. There's a story that is there. And my guess for us here in this place, if we were honest with ourselves, our lives are more like country music than rock and roll. And so this morning as we continue our series called Mixtape, we're going to look at one of these songs, one of these psalms that I think can help us deal with those country music songs in our life. If you haven't been here, this series is based on back in the day, we used to make our own mixtapes. Remember that? You know, you used to get a cassette and cassette players and a boom box and you had to do all these different things. It would take you like five, six, 12 days to, to actually put one of these cassettes together and you'd have like 10 songs on there, your favorite songs. And so that was what we called them. We called them mixtapes. Today, we call them a playlist. Then we get on our phones, we hit a couple of pluses, and we've got our playlist in 10 seconds. We're good to go. We're ready. The idea for this series is that God gave us a mixtape, and it's the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we have 150 songs. They were written over the span of about 900 years. About 73 of these 150 songs were written by King David or written to or about King David. And so we equate most of these with King David, even though he didn't actually write every single one of them. But every single one of them, there's something that we can learn from them. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at song number one, song number two. Last week was song 23. And this morning, we're going to look at song 40. Song 40. Um, if you're a big U2 fan, you probably are familiar with this song. This is a song that they actually, a psalm that they actually put music to. The name of that song is 40. It's a great tune if you get a chance to listen to it. Um, but this song is a little strange too because it kind of starts out like, hey, here's some, here's some good stuff. And then at the end, life is terrible. Um, you kind of wonder, did they switch it? Should like the bottom be at the top and then the, the last few verses be at the bottom? 
In fact, if you look at Psalm 40, uh, the last few lines, the last probably three stanzas, are actually Psalm 70. And so some think that maybe they took Psalm 70 and moved it over. Others think they took this part of Psalm 40 and made it Psalm 70. So there's a connection there with one of the other songs. But we're just going to look at the first three verses of song number 40 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those and to follow along. We'll put them up here on the screen. Uh, you can also follow along on your Journey Church app or the program that you have. You can take notes there today. But Psalm chapter 40, Song 40, here's what we read. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Over the next few moments, I want to take those three lines there, those three verses that we have, and I want to talk to you about Six things that we can find from here. And honestly, this really is a process. This is a path that we can take based on what we see here with what David wrote for the country song moments in our lives. Again, if you have your, your program there, you can see that back uh, piece there. Uh, I've got an acronym here for you, Schwibbly, I think is what it comes out to be. So you just remember the Schwibbly method, uh, which isn't even a word. But um, anyway, the first thing here is stuck. David stuck. If you look at that second part there, he says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. And more than likely, every single one of us in this place, we've been stuck before. Maybe you've been, we live in the D.C. metro area. This week, you've been stuck in traffic somewhere, right? It might even been a mile from your house, but you've been stuck in traffic. Uh, Maybe you've been stuck in an elevator before, which I can only imagine is one of the most horrible experiences in the world. But, But we've all felt these moments that we have been stuck. When we lived in New Jersey, I was working as a, an associate pastor at a, a church there, and um, that was my day job, and my other gig was I worked for a company called Eagles Flight. Eagles Flight was an experiential learning organization. Uh, companies would hire them to come in. They would do these games with them, uh, these corporate games, and at the end, we'd take an hour or two and just kind of talk about what we learned through that experience, and so I was one of the actors that was a, a part of the game that was being played. And so we traveled all over the United States to, to do this. One of the places that we went was Boston. And uh, we had to fly out of Newark to go to Boston. I, I don't know how many of you have flown out of Newark before, but it's not like the greatest airport to fly out of, right? If you've been there. Uh, always late. You're never on time. We got there just in the nick of time. They're like, hey, guess what? Your flight's on time. And everybody's here. So they got everybody on the plane. We're all on the plane. The pilot's like, we're ready to go. And they're going to let us move a little bit early. And you're thinking... This must be heaven because everything's just kind of falling into place. We get pushed off from the gate. We go out on the tarmac and, and we go get in line. And I, where, from where my seat was, I could count the, the planes in front of me or in front of us. There was about 10. So I did a little math, 10 planes. You know, you got about two minutes between takeoffs. So we got about 20 minutes and we're in the air. We're flying to Boston. Everything's wonderful. But you know, the airport guys listen to your mind when you're thinking of those things, all right? And they're like, sorry for you guys. We didn't move. And nobody was taken off, and we just sat there on the tarmac. Now, this was the middle of summer. It was one of those days, it was about 100 degrees. And so you've got the heat that's just barreling down on this 
microwave, this metal tube called an airplane. You've got all the heat coming up from the tarmac. You've got all the engine fumes from all the other planes that are just shooting back on you. And you're sitting there thinking, thankfully, we've got air conditioning in this plane. You know those airport guys? They listen to everything you think. We'd been waiting for about 15 minutes, and I don't know what happened. Some reason the pilot turned off the air. We're sitting there in this heat, and let me just tell you, those planes heat up pretty quickly when there's nothing moving anywhere inside, inside the plane. And so we're sitting there, and it's really eerie because everybody is quiet. In fact, nobody's even moving. There were babies that were crying. I, this is a true part of the story. There were babies that were crying who stopped crying because it was so hot. Sweat, and I'm a sweater, sweat just starts to pour off my body. I'm thinking, I don't think I can do this. Now, now today, what do we do? Somebody jumps out the escape hatch, right? Or they get up and they yell and they get in somebody's face. Finally, after you're about to the point, you're like, I don't think I can, I can survive much longer. Just give me some water to drink. They turn the air on. We're like, oh, thankfully, everybody starts moving again. Well, they did it again. And a couple of times, we were there for about an hour sitting on the tarmac. Man, it's never fun to be stuck, is it? None of us enjoy that. Here's David in Song 40, and he says, I'm stuck. Now, what he means is he's not stuck physically in a pit, in a cistern, in this deep well. What he's stuck in is something that's hopeless, something he feels helpless with in his life. He can't get beyond it. And in fact, there's sort of this imagery that no matter how hard David is trying to get out of this pit, he just keeps sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. What is the place that you and I are stuck? What does it look like? Overworked? You got too much going on? Too much travel is happening? Are you a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad? You got two kids that just cry consistently all the time. You you just want to get away from it. Are you stuck in a relationship where you're fearful, you're scared? Are you just stuck in in some aspect of of life, some emotional struggle or spiritual struggle, even our own decisions and sin? We're just kind of stuck. And sometimes we don't know what to do. Here's King David saying, hey, guess what? I've been there. I've been stuck. And what does he say he needs to do? The next part there, he says, I need help. It says there in verse 1, he turned to me and heard my cry. David's stuck, but he turns to God. He looks at God. He's like, God, I need help. He calls on God. What do we tend to do when we're stuck in those moments of life? We, we tend to internalize, don't we? We tend to try to figure out how can I get out of this place that I find myself in? What steps can I take? Because we want to take all this on ourselves. For us, many times, God's the last resort. We've got nowhere else to turn. I, I think David probably started out trying to figure it out. He was probably a type A type person. But he gets to this place, he finally says, I need God to help me. But you know what's interesting? You and I don't like asking for help, do we? One of the things that's always fascinating to me is uh, the church. Because we'll walk into church on Sunday morning and how many people are ready this morning and say, hey, how you doing? And our response every single time is, I'm good. Things are fine. Everything's wonderful. In fact, there's a satire Christian website called Babylon B. I don't know if any of you here are familiar with it, follow any of their posts. They're hilarious. Um, 
because it's satire and it's Christian, which means it's not real, but it is to some degree. If you're familiar with The Onion, it's very much like The Onion. This is one of the posts they had from uh, July 12th. It says, report every single person at church doing fine, all right? So I want to read you parts of this particular article that they put together. Here's what it said. The results of Pastor Mike's informal survey are in. Every single member of Bayfront Methodist Church is doing either fine, good, or real good. When the pastor pressed for details, members responded with some, some combination of, no, really, I'm doing great, or else, yeah, things are good, things are good. It's really quite spectacular, the pastor told reporters Monday. You would think, given the state of our fallen world, that at least one person would be going through a crisis or battling some kind of indwelling sin that they need help with. But not at this church. We're all doing fine, it seems. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Prayer requests for the week included several reports of distant friends and family that were struggling with sin, but nobody in the church reported needing prayer for themselves. (laughs) Prayer? Me? One congregate said to Pastor Mike, a puzzled expression on her face. No, I mean, you can pray for me generally, but really I'm not in much need of anything right now. I'm doing awesome, really. She was later spotted at a coffee shop, bawling her eyes out over some personal struggle, according to sources. Isn't this true? You know, we we walk in these doors, and I don't know, we've messed it up at some point in time. We've said, hey, when you come to church, you've got to be perfect, and everything's got to be right. And I don't care how, how stinky and horrible your life is outside of here. Come in here and make sure that you put a mask on and you hide that. This is the worst place to do that. This is the place you've got to come in and take the mask off. And you've got to be willing to say, I'm not doing fine. Now, here's the hard part. When you ask somebody how you're doing, they're like, I'm not doing fine. We're kind of like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> right? That's when you introduce them to somebody else. Like, hey, i got a friend over here. It's hard. Because we think we come here and we're supposed to be fine. We're not. We're struggling. We're hurting. And we walk into this place and we come here for a reason. Most of the time it's because there's something inside of us in the past or even right now that we're experiencing that we need help with. We're stuck in that pit that David's talking about. And there's an opportunity to say, I'm not fine. I need help. I need prayer. That's why we invite people to to serve and to be in life groups. I, I can tell you our staff does not have the capacity for everybody in this room right now to come up and say, hey, I'm not doing fine. What we will do is help you connect with someone who can help you. But that's why life groups are so important. That's why serving is so important. You're meeting people, you're building relationships, and you're having that opportunity to say, hey, you know what? I'm actually not doing fine. I need help. And we don't always have to wait until we're at the end of our rope to call on God either. David's like, I'm in this pit, I'm struggling, and I need help. And here's what I love about what he wrote there. He says, he turned to me. The translation there really means that God bent down to David. That God bent down and listened intently to what David had to say. That I'm in this pit, God, and I need you. But here's the funny part about how God works. God doesn't answer right away. There's waiting that many times has to take place. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. A better translation of this is, I waited, waited for the Lord. David's not like, hey, I just waited a little bit. He's like, I really had to wait on God to answer this prayer to get me out of this pit. Waiting is not fun, right? Nobody likes to wait. When you go to the doctor for a doctor's appointment, if you're like me, you like to get there a little early because you're like, I'm going to get here a little early. Maybe they'll get me in a little early. Maybe I'll get out a little early. And it's funny because you get there, like, Mr. Simpkins, come on back. You're like, 
hey, I'm like five minutes there. This is wonderful. And they take you back and the nurse does everything they're supposed to do. And you're thinking, I'm going to get out of here in about 30 minutes. I'm going to be good to go. And what does the nurse always say? Hey, the doctor will be with you shortly. We all know it, right? It's a lie. It's a lie that they've been told to tell us. Because then you're sitting there on that bed, desk, table thing with the scratchy, loud paper, and you don't want to move around. And you're sitting there, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And the worst part is you know your doctor's voice, and you hear them walking past your door, right, back and forth. They're helping somebody else. You're like, maybe they forgot I'm in here because the door is shut. Maybe I need to open the door. I mean, all these things are going through our minds. And finally they come in and are like, oh, I'm so sorry. We're just so busy today. And like, well, I got like two minutes. Can you tell me what this fungus is on my face? And they tell you and you're done. But waiting is not fun. One of my favorite apps on my phone is my Dunkin' Donuts app. And the reason is pretty simple. It's because it's got order on the go. Um, I don't know if you've been to Dunkin' Donuts or if you like Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I love their coffee, but their customer service is so slow. I like Starbucks, too. You can go to Starbucks, you can order something, and even if they're slow, they're moving so quickly, you're thinking, oh, man, they're actually doing stuff back there. Dunkin' Donuts is a little bit different. I'm not sure about their training that they do. But I love before I'm going into work or I've got a meeting somewhere and if I need to get some coffee, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and order on the go and it's ready for me when I get there. And, and you walk in, there's like 10 people in line just like, how you doing? Hey, how are you? You got to wait, don't you? I'm going to get my coffee. And you go and you grab your coffee and everybody looks at you like they want to hurt you. <laughs> I got an app. This is how I got up here so fast. And you wave to them as you're walking out because you know they're going to be there for about another 30 minutes or so. We don't like to wait. That's why we have an easy pass on our car here. We'll pay $35 to go two miles because we don't want to wait with everybody else. We don't care, right? We're not patient people at all. And yet here's David who says, I waited patiently or I waited, waited for the Lord. Two things I think happen when we end up waiting. God teaches us two things. The first one is humility. Because here's the deal. We think because we're so smart. And we live in such a great place and we're so educated and we're so type A. We think we can, we can fix everything, that we can dig ourselves out of these pits. But you know what God's like? <laughs> you can't do it. And, and you know what? If I answer your prayer real soon, you're going to think that it's you who did this. So here's the deal. I'm going to make you wait and wait. And you need to be patient and you need to learn patient because I want you to be humble about this. I want you to be able to look back and say, God's the one who made this happen. But then the other part of that is, is hope. It reminds us that there's hope because it seems like, at least in my life, every single time I'm about the moment, I'm like, I just, I'm about ready to just give up and give in. That's when God's like, you're ready. And now you're ready for me to do something in your life. See, I think we learn humility and hope when it comes to the waiting. Because the beauty after the waiting is the rescue. I mean, that is just an amazing moment. And we read that here with David. He says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. There's nothing more incredible than being rescued. I've talked before about my cousin, Joel. He's a senior chief petty officer at the Kodiak Air, um, Air Base for the Coast Guard. He's an instructor there now. He's a rescue swimmer. I know there's another name for it, but that's confusing. So he's a rescue swimmer. Um, 
when Hurricane Katrina came, he was one of the first units. He and his helicopter, one of the first guys there to help get these families, to get these individuals out of their homes. He was, uh, he was lowered down to this one home. The family's stuck in the attic, and whatever tools he had, he just couldn't break through the roof. And so he got off and found, I think it was a, a disabled truck, a, a fire truck, went on, grabbed one of the axes, came back up, was able to cut through the roof and get this family out. And then he was able to tell, their helicopter was able to tell the other guys, like, hey, you've got to get the axe so that we can cut through these roofs. And that was what he was known for, for Hurricane Katrina. I, I can't imagine, though, these, these individuals who are stuck inside these homes thinking death is imminent, and someone comes in, cuts a hole out, opens it up, and takes you to freedom and rescues you. It's got to be an amazing, amazing moment. Some of you, maybe you've experienced that on the battlefield in places that you've been. Maybe you've experienced that in a car wreck or whatever it may be, but you've, you've been in those places and you've been rescued. Being rescued is an incredible feeling. David says, God rescued me. I cried out to God. I was in this pit. I had to wait. But God showed up and rescued me. I'm not sinking anymore. I'm not getting deeper and deeper into this well. Again, there's nothing better than being rescued. There's nothing better than our marriages being mended. There's nothing better than that relationship that's been broken for so long that the repairs are finally happening and it's changing. There's nothing better than our finances finally being fixed. There's nothing better than that moment we get the phone call and they say, hey, your cancer's gone. There's nothing better when you've been trying for years and years to have a child and all of a sudden you find out, hey, we're finally pregnant. Those are amazing moments. There's nothing better when our past has been redeemed. It's an incredible, incredible feeling. And see, God says, this is what I can do. I can rescue you. And David says, I've been in that pit. I've been there and I've cried out to God and I've waited and waited and God came in and God rescued me. What does that rescue mean? It means that we can finally breathe. David writes, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Because of this new life, there's, there's air and there's breath and there's freedom. And there's this new song that, that we can sing. And there's nothing better than fresh air, right? When you've been cooped in your house for five days because it keeps raining over and over and over again, especially if you've got kids, nothing better than saying, hey, get outside. We're going to go outside. There's nothing better than those moments when you've been stuck in a small space, whatever that may be, an elevator, an airplane, a room. And somebody says, hey, you, you can leave now. You can You can breathe. There's nothing better when you've been in a van with middle school kids for a week and you finally get to your destination and you open those doors and you run as hard as you can because you just want to smell the fresh, fresh air that is out there. Nothing better. David says, God rescued me from the mire, from the cistern, from the pit. And you know what? There's freedom in that. And he says, there's a new song that I can sing because of that. What's our response when we get that new air? When we get that new song, when we get that fresh breath of life, that new life. Oh, it's an amazing, incredible feeling. It's all because God has been there the whole time. It's all because through these moments of pain and hurt, we finally look back and we say, God has been a part of this and helped me get to this place. And now I can truly breathe that freedom and that fresh air. 
that new song that we sing. But that's not the ending here, because the last piece to this is the impact that all of this can have. David says, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Sometimes the journey that we're on is long. It's hard. It seems like it's never going to end. And yet if we're patient, God can rescue us. God can give us this fresh breath, this, this, this fresh moment of air and, and freedom in our lives. And you know what? We get to look back at that story of our country song. And we get to be reminded of what God did. But it's hard. It's tough to be there. But God can use that to impact the lives of others. I've shared in the past about our first child was uh, stillborn seven and a half months into the pregnancy. Um, and, and the pain and hurt and the emotional and spiritual things that were happening through that. Uh, I've also shared, or I haven't shared, but uh, between our second and, and third ch- children, um, we had a miscarriage three months into that pregnancy. Um, some of you know, if you've been a part of the journey since uh, we moved here, our son Jake, who's 10, uh, for three years had heart issues, and finally we're in a pretty good place with him. And miraculously, through a lot of prayer, we feel like God has, has healed his, his heart. But we look back at all those moments, and those are just a small piece of our family's life. But those have been hard moments within the journey of, of our own lives, and we've struggled. And, and I've shared with you in the past about my spiritual struggles with God because of the, the first child that was stillborn. People have come to us and said, hey, how have you guys made it through that? And part of it is like, I'm not sure. But we've been able to go back and, and talk about what David says here. You know what? In those pits, we figured out we couldn't fix things. We couldn't do anything to make this better. It had to be God that was in charge of this. And so we just had to finally get to a place and say, God, we got nothing. It's yours. And only then did we experience that true freedom. Only only then did we get a place where we understood, God, you are leading us through these times. And when you get to share that with other people, and even when the outcome's not good, it's amazing. It's amazing how God can use that to impact the lives of others. Look, I can promise you with our, our first child, we, and again, I talked about this before, we prayed and prayed and prayed. We had people praying. We were thinking, God's going to do something amazing. God's going to heal this body. Everything's going to be great. And it never happened the way that we thought it should. God says, hey, here's what I need you to learn from this. I got you. I know it's a pit. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I know it's not a place you want to be. But here's the deal. I'm going to pull you out of it. I'm going to rescue you. I've heard your cries. I am bent down, listen intently to what you're going through. And I'm going to give you this new life, this fresh breath, the fresh air that you need a new song. Many of us in this room, we've been there. You've experienced those moments, those pits, and maybe you're in one right now. Here's what God says to you. Hey, I got this, and I know it hurts, and I know it's painful, but I'm going to lift you out of that pit, out of the muck, and out of the mire, and I'm going to set your foot on solid ground. And here's the deal. You're going to be able to tell other people how you went through that and how you made it through that and how your life has changed because of it. See, when we experience these moments, we grow, right? Our faith grows. We we grow closer to God. We, We change. We're transformed. David says, but you also have the opportunity to impact the lives of others through your story, through 
through your country song. And God uses that to change and transform the lives of other people in your life. That's the power. What's your next step for this particular song? I would say acknowledge the pit. Know that it exists. And then make sure that you're crying out to God for help. God, I need you in this. I am stuck and I cannot get out. Learn patience. And then lastly, let God rescue you. It's the only way you're going to make it through it. You can't do it on your own. God may use other people in your life to help you take those next steps. Let, let them be that, that voice for God in your life so that you can be changed and so that God can pull you out and rescue you and give you that new song. And then you get to share that with others and impact the lives of so many people around you. As we head into our communion time this morning, I want to read to you something Jesus said in John 16. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world.